Welcome to uh, Lacrosse Live with Harvard head coach Jerry Byrne. Um, he is uh, sending out a quick uh, note to all his followers to jump on. We're going to try to answer questions. There's a bunch of questions on Twitter. Um, so if that's easier for you, feel free on that. And then um, you can also ask questions on this Facebook, and I will be able to go back. I got, I got, I got the, uh, the Jalen and Rowe pantheon behind me. I think there's no picture of me going over your head and trying to go over your head and like blasted. Isn't that no, right? but, um, I'm working on that one. I'm going to make sure that happens. That was, that was, that was like, two, like the, the frightening thing is, is that, you know, you and I are pretty, both pretty healthy and pretty active that like in your mind, you think it looks one way, but it actually looked like two fat guys bumping into each other. No, like, no, I, I w I've watched the video of that. I actually, my, my dad was on his, had, was on his phone. And so I, I'll send it to you. I actually have that video of me not being able to run three steps above GLE before you go right over my head. <laughs> there, there were two certainties in that thing. I was going to try to take the ball away from you and you were going to go to the cave. It was, it was like, it was like Rocky 73. What's going on? How you doing? Um, you know, doing. Yeah. There's nothing else to do but to do something. Um, yeah, I mean, um, absolutely crazy, insane. Um, I want to I wanna hear how things are going, but in light of the fact that there was a, a, some kind of an announcement or a pending announcement, did you see that? I did. So the NCAA is, is talking about, you know, it seems appropriate, they say, to grant spring sports another year of eligibility. Um, what are your quick thoughts on that? You know, I, I think I think the NCAA should be lauded for making that decision in a timely manner. So I think from a from a, a from an administration standpoint, you're you're happy for the speed with which they were able to recognize the you know how emotional it was for these players to lose you know a portion of their season. So the you know for so a high percentage of athletes, you know, who may have the capability academically and financially to, to stay and play for an extra year, either now or in the future. Um, I think that's a great thing that the NCAA was able to do that uh, quickly. What, you know, I'm, but I'm sure they've also factored in that this is not going to be applied equally to every league and every school. And, uh, and also it's not everybody's going to be able to do it from, whether it's seniors who've accepted jobs or have other obligations. And, you know, I don't think they've uh, explained what the implications might be from a scholarship or financial aid standpoint. Um, but I assume those questions will be answered at some point and uh, they'll be dealt with on an individual basis with, with those families and those players. I've got two kids in college playing college across right now. And, and um, I'm, I'm so happy to hear this. Uh, literally, I was like in a, in, a, in a week of just seemingly never ending bad news and on top of more bad news, which uh, realistically there may be more to come. This was just like a nice, uh, a nice little bright spot. Um, I do foresee there being a lot of challenges with this as great as it is and is selfishly so great on the one hand for my son and my daughter they're in college you know I have a daughter who's a 2021 and and for the next four years there's going to be five classes which is pretty uh which is pretty kind of daunting in some ways even if you are so psyched to, for everybody to have it back because how do you deal with roster caps and money and all of that it's it's really it's going to be kind of uh interesting to see how that plays out and you know the you know, option, you know, within the Ivy League, you know, there's, you know, there's rules that are Ivy based, there are, there are rules that are institution based that vary between teams in our league. And, you know, so it's going to put, you know, some pressure on um, those institutions interpretations of their own policies, you know, you know, the, 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 lack of clarity within our league around potential next steps provides opportunities for, you know, these other schools who are, 
you know, looking around and you know, looked at, you know, the, the quality of the seasons that teams in our league were having and the wins that, that we all had over, over top programs is, you know, we don't know what to tell our players right now about what they can and cannot do relative to this new announcement that just came out 30 minutes ago from the NCAA. So that the lack of clarity and the lack of certainty around that for, for student athletes in the Ivy league, you know, I think, I don't know if it's the same elation because I think each member of those teams from, you know, Yale, Princeton, Harvard, Dartmouth, you know, Penn, Cornell, Harvard, you know, if you gave them a choice, they want to stay with their team. They want to stay at their school and that may not be an outcome for each one of those athletes, but that, that may become a boon to, you know, schools who aren't in the Ivy league, but I think you're exactly right. You know, you can't always, you know, it's the, uh, the law of unintended consequences. The fact that you're going to have, you know, four years of, you know, guys with extra years, you know, the financial implications of that and, you know, the, the challenges of a gluttony of talent, not only, not only a gluttony of talent, but potential talent from other schools when they, when they transfer and you can't always predict how that might affect your culture, not just the affordability and the digestion of talent, but how do you integrate that talent? How do you bring, you know, new people into your program? That that's not, obviously it's less of an issue within the Ivy league because transferring is so difficult, but um, you know, I think you want to be careful with your relation if you're a certain kind of school because, you know, the unintended consequences are, are waiting for you in the future. Whenever you think, I just remember always thinking, man, if we could just take our freshman class and have kept last year's senior class, we'd be so good. And, you know, that, that's, that's, that's actually what's going to happen now. Right. For a lot of years. But, but you, you know, know, an extra year that, with Andy Towers and, and Dave Evans, you know, you know that, you know. You get the towel, but also you get some of the other stuff too. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Um, I don't know. Maybe they ought to just like give every every high school player another year too, and like let's just like send everybody back one year and start over next year, and and all the twenties become twenty ones, the twenty twos become twenty threes, and so on and so forth. You know, I, I what I what I've tried to do is, you know, when, when everything is out of control. You, you try to lean on the things that you can control. So we've, you know, within our staff, we've tried to, you know, keep on our daily schedule and our same, um, you know, procedures and, and things. You know, we're trying to feed that hole in our lives about, about, about coaching and, um, you know, trying to avoid the uncertainty of what this means for recruiting. And because we don't know, and we don't control it. And so we're like everybody else waiting for the, you know, the shoot a fall regarding uh, what this means for recruiting and what this means for your eligibility and what this means for your future teams. It's, it, it can be really stressful and it is, you know, for all the different parents and kids and, and the student athletes on your team. Um, but to help minimize that, you know, what we've done is we're, we're trying to compete. We're getting out on the basketball court and, and squash courts here and we're trying to have our meetings and we're, watching lacrosse, whether it's on, you know, old games or uh, some of our own games, so we can continue to keep our skills fresh because that's what we're going to expect of our own players. Yeah, interesting. Can you uh, share with us what the Ivy League rules are uh, as it relates to uh, – and, and who knows, maybe you guys will get a waiver, but generally it's, it's, uh, it's hard for Ivy kids to take their fifth year at their Ivy school. Why is yeah, that? You know, there, there's, there's uh, no graduate school – you know, grad students, you know, can't compete in the Ivy League. That's it. And the, um, you know, they're, you know, they're, you know, they're frowning upon, which is right. They don't want people withdrawing and, and trying to save their years. And, you know, they want people who are in their academic year to continue to make that progress toward the completion of this year or the completion of their degree. There are the majority of the schools in our league have semester limitations that you can only be, you know, a student athlete on, at your campus for a, a, you know, eight semesters. And so that, you know, those, those two limitations, you know, put, you know, a constraint on, uh, not in the possibility, because I think there's going to be ongoing conversations within our league relative to this announcement. Um, but, 
you know, each of the, you know, most of the teams in our league have a semester uh, limitation. Uh, I don't, I, I know most of them, I'm not gonna speak uh, specifically on that, um, but that makes it a, you know, a non-starter unless the league and the university presidents make a, uh, an exception or an exemption relative to that. Um, so when are your, when are your athletes, everyone's got to go home. When, when are, when are your athletes out of there? They are, they're required. I think Harvard was one of the first universities, if not the first university to make a hard date of when they had to leave campus. Harvard is 99.9% .9 residential. So our, our students and student athletes live in community in the houses and in Harvard Yard and they are uh, required to be gone by five o'clock tomorrow night. So you're, you're doing your end of the uh, year wrap up meetings with them right now? Or? No, you know, there's, those are more kind of organic because, you know, the guidelines from the university is social distancing and to avoid these big group meetings to, you know, for the safety, less the safety, as you know, less the safety of our our student athletes because they're young and healthy and they may be exposed to this, but they have a lower, um, you know, mortality rate relative to the, to the rest of the universe. So it's more about how it may affect their parents and grandparents and, and things like that. So we are following uh, those guidelines, but guys are, you know, trickling in uh, to clean out their lockers and, and take their personal items from campus so they're they're stopping in and you're having brief conversations with them so yeah i guess technically you are having you know end of year meetings but they are they're out of respect for yeah. you know their you know their health and safety and their families and loved ones we're we're minimizing them as much as possible i want to hear your opinion on that because um i've got kids that are going to be coming home uh soon and um this the, the, the kids aren't that afraid of it right now. Um, maybe they should be more afraid than they are. Maybe they shouldn't. Maybe none of us should. I don't really know. But the whole concept of social distancing and slowing the spread of this thing, um, you know, with all the kids coming home, um, it's, it, it puts a difficult burden on them. They're not used to sort of having these, these controlled parameters. I mean, nobody is, but I kind of feel like, you know, older people might be a little bit more okay with just sitting at the desk and working from home. Whereas the kids aren't really like that. What do you, what is your advice to your students as it relates to the responsibility, you know, that, that, that they have? I thought, you know, I think, you know, I think the, every generation of that age think they're, you know, how they see the world is how they see the world. You know, I, I you know, wh whether it's, you know, if you think back to maybe our generation when we were in our early to mid twenties and, and um, Magic Johnson, you know, announced that he had AIDS. That, you know, that was a seminal moment, I think, for our generation. Not that we were unaware of, of that disease, but it hadn't struck, you know, it, it, as, as awful as that was. And it was, it was, you know, bigger than Magic Johnson. It was almost that moment was when that happened. You know, Magic Johnson and Rock Hudson who was an actor, famous, you know, actor from the mid 20th century. You know those two things. But wow, if these icons can contract this disease, then we can all uh, get it in some way. So I, you know, it's almost like whether it's the announcement of you know someone famous like Tom Hanks or the uh, NBA players that have tested positive. It's you know that becomes makes it even more real because you know it's it's a celebrity. Um, society now and so I, I think I think pretty quickly they've gotten out of their kind of narrow view of what it means to them you know as a team as an athlete and having your season um, you know removed and and curtailed and ended you know I think pretty quickly they're seeing that this is bigger and beyond them and whether they still have that kind of bulletproof mentality you know you would probably know better than I because your, your kids are a little bit younger than mine but I think they're starting to realize that it's it's bigger than them. It's bigger than their season. It's bigger what it means to them losing their season when people are losing their their lives. And so, I think that's what they're coming to to reality with. As far as kind of what we're doing, you know, we're we're you know once you know they go home, I think we're going to try to do the best we can to, 
you know, mimic their day that they would have when they were here. They're going to be taking their classes uh, on Zoom and, you know, going through their day. And then, you know, they're, they're going to be working out and sweating and, you know, and, and probably connecting with their, their teammates electronically and, and if allowed, maybe with our coaching staff electronically. So we're going to try to mimic that as much as possible because your body's going to be demanding that and that's good for your, your own stress and anxiety around what this all means for you. How about the Rock Hudson reference? I haven't heard about Rock Hudson since, uh, you know, since last time I watched the Flintstones. I think there was a, a Rock Hudson character on the Flintstones. That was, that was too easy, you know. Uh, you know, my, my, uh, my, my mom, who, you know, recently passed away, and uh, my mom was a huge movie fan. And, you know, she taught me all, taught me about all the great actors from the 30s, 40s, and, and 50s. And, you I was know, gonna say. I, I, I've made my children watch some of my favorite movies. And, you know, the, the problem is that in, in the modern movie, somebody is getting killed or blown up or, you know, something else happening every 15 minutes. In those movies, the dialogue and the, and the subtle gestures were everything. And, and obviously, Rock Hudson was, was, was a, you know, quite a fixture of that time. So, yeah. Uh, kind of yeah. reminds me of, uh, you know, the situation we're in now. It's like, um, unlike... Uh, the Ivy League now, back in the day, um, Freddie Twinkletoe's Flintstone did get to go back for uh, an extra year of eligibility. At Princeton. The Princeton versus Shale game. <laughs> nice. Well played. Yeah. For, for, for anybody under the age of 40, the Flintstones was a, TV, was a cartoon TV show. <laughs> it was a good one. My problem right now is I have a really itch. I have an itch on my nose, and it's driving me insane. All right, well, put your hand over the camera. So yeah, I can't. I mean, I just have to set a good example here, coughing in the sleeve. Uh, you know, don't try to know. You know, uh, I, you know, people who know me, you know, social distancing is not a problem. I'm, you know, I'm not as friendly as I appear. So that's not been, I've been living by myself here in Boston for, for seven months. So I've, I've, I've been doing my own social distancing. It reminds me of a, uh, Oh, never mind. I'm not going to go down that path. That's a story that we can we can hold on to uh, for later. Um, so, want me to uh, go to some of the questions that were um, sure. on, uh, sure. on our Twitter? Um, all right. How about this from Chris Garland, um, coach at Detroit Country Day? What are your tried and true drills for Harvard lacrosse? That's we've only been here for a certain amount of time, Chris. So I don't I don't know if we've had any tried and true um drills yet but um i did yeah, they're, they're repurposed notre dame lacrosse drills. yeah yeah um not you know i think one of the probably my most consistent drill over the last three or four years has been a drill that i call simon says and you know everyone's always talking about how important communication is and, but there's not a lot of drills where you can do that because you need to practice being loud and, and decisive and directive like any other skill. And so, and it's particularly hard for young players to tell older players what to do. And the only way you can get used to doing that is making them do it. And so- Come on, guys, talk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're, I don't hear anything. And so, <laughs> uh, but also, you know, the using simple one and two syllable words that that are really evocative and provocative and descriptive and, you know, talk about roles and situations sometimes simultaneously. So I think there's a video of that somewhere floating around the internet from my previous life. So Chris, you might want to look up Simon Says. I can't remember if I spelled it S-E-Z or S-A-Y-S, but it's out there and it's, it's, it's something that we probably did four days a week, five days a week here at Harvard and you're, and you can customize it to um, a future opponent. You can, you can focus it on just a couple of different terms. And as I told uh, my, you know, when I coached at Notre Dame and, and since I coached at Harvard, that I want to be able to, if I had the sound off, if I was videoing the drill and I looked at it, I should be able to tell what the, the direction that the person who's given the instruction, I should be able to, figure out what you'd be telling them even if the sound was off because there's a reaction there's a there's a 
using your teammate's name. There's an instruction and a direction, and then there's a reaction. And I should, with the sound off, I should be able to tell what word and what instruction was being used. So good question, Chris. And, uh, you know, loved your, loved your commentary on the, the face-off, by the way. He'll know what I mean. All right. Um, this one from Nick Beatty. Ah, Beetle. That's a blast from this fast. I remember watching that kid running around. Uh, oh, my God. The um, king of that, Nick, Nick Beatty was the king of the sky whammy. He was, man. He, he may have invented the sky whammy. I mean, I, I used to love – his game back in. He was a Columbus kid, right? What high school did he go to? Columbus, uh, Kilborn, Worthington, Kilborn, Worthington, Kilborn. He, uh, uh, yeah, Brian Fisher and I, when we both started that first in the, in the fall, in the shooting in August 2006 at Notre Dame, Brian Fisher is now the head coach at Monmouth, uh, University, is that, um, that whole class we basically recruited off of highlight videos. So, Sean Rogers and Max Pfeiffer and Kevin Randall and Nick Beatty, guys who became, you know, you know, captains and ridiculous players at, at Notre Dame. You know, Beatty's first minute of his highlights were him sky whamming. You know, for anybody who doesn't know what a sky whammy is, Nick Beatty would get up to the island and, and fake a jump shot, either up the hash or off of a question mark, and the defenseman would turn around and chase the shot or the pass, and he'd walk in behind him. And, and I'm 99% I'm, I'm sure Nick Beatty's high school highlight tape is somewhere on YouTube, so if you can find that. But that was the first minute of his tape, and I was like, man, dude, we got to have that guy. And he became a great player and, and a, uh, a captain at, at Notre Dame. I don't know why more people don't do that, by the way, because, I mean, basically it's, a, it's like a hidden ball chick, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with a little – you know, hidden ball trick on man up, or you see the Canadians doing that during substitutions, and there's nothing lost if it doesn't work. It usually doesn't work, but every now and then it gets you a free goal, and sometimes a big one. Now, these types of sky whammies are are basically hidden ball tricks. I mean, you could also do stuff like, you know, Chris Paul would do, particularly as Chris Paul is getting older. Like, say, say you and I are playing, trying to play two man in basketball, and Chris, you know, Nick Beatty used to do the same thing on lacrosse field. So. Like I'd be, I'd have the ball and I'd point at you like I'm trying to get you to set yeah. away for me and get as soon as the pick guy here, looked, pick here, pick here, and go the other way. He turn it over the other way. He was the king of it, of splitting guys off to that because 50% of the time the guy would look and it, 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 it actually helped fuel my whole mentality around defense, which was never look at the pick. If you're okay with switching, never look at the pick. And so, uh, but then all these teams started falling down on picks and that became a whole other thing but uh so nick had a question somewhere in, in yeah all yeah, yeah yeah we got a little distracted there okay ready um what do you foresee as changes for high school juniors and seniors um relative to covid um you know i like listen i you know we just had a compliance meeting this morning and you know yes you know you get you see you're looking at schools who are going to do distance learning and that works up to a point, you know, what if you're in, in my daughter's in medical school and, you know, there's a certain amount of learning that you do by doing that, you know, anatomy lab is really hard to, it's really hard to work on a cadaver when you're looking at it on, on a video screen. And so I think some of those same challenges that universities are under, I think they're particularly, you know, similar for, for high schools. And so what is that going to mean for graduation and, and, you know, if that's going to be held off or, you know, uh, but I think, you know, a lot of them do stuff electronically through, is it Blackboard or Whiteboard or whatever, you know, how some of the teachers put their notes and can do some of that stuff. So, but not every school is wired that way. Not everyone has a smart classroom or smart boards or the capability of doing that stuff. So I, I don't, you know, I don't know what it's going to mean for the seniors who, you know, who um, obviously need to graduate to, to enroll at a place like Harvard. You know, I don't know what it means for them, so I definitely don't know what it means for the 2021s. Uh, he had one more question. What What's a rule that we're still getting wrong right now? You know, I think the yeah, I th listen. I think the face off and the dive are they just they simply put they took a rule the dive 
that they couldn't consistently get right, made it more complex and expected to get it right more. So, you know, it's, it's you know, so that I, I, would, I would be shocked if that wasn't revamped or something simpler for the referees. The game is so damn fast now that it's hard for those guys to be in position to determine where was, you know, what angle was he pushed? Did he step on the line? When did he hit the goalie? Where was the ball? Where did he land? Did he land and roll? When he landed, was the ball passed before the contact? You know what I mean? There's, there's so many moving parts that I think if you gave him the Zabruder film and broke it down frame by frame, they, they still might not be able to get it right 85% of the time. So that sounds like the NFL and the pass interference. Yeah, I just they think can't get, I mean, they can't. And, and they have, and by the way, that they have probably 15 cameras trained on the floor and, and still, you know, don't get it right every time. So the human, the, the complexity of all that stuff going on, and you only have three guys out there, and they're sometimes because of the speed of the play or where the defender and the goalie and the, and the guy with the ball are, it's just, it's impossible. And you know, what's your what's your fix though? I mean, to me, it's like just let let it be like pro rules, just just let them dive and just decide whether they got the shot off before the foot was in the crease. Yeah, I, I, you know, whatever it is, simplicity has got to be the rule because complexity is not the way to go. And relative to the faceoff, um, and and it's less about you have a good guy if someone else has a has a better guy. I just think that. They're missing jumps. They're not calling the turns. Remember when that was supposed to be a thing? They the like the number of turns that you have after you win the clamp. Remember when that was a rule? Yeah. It's not being called. Um, you know, um, yeah, the movement, like I'm I'm a referee and I'm I'm backing up and I'm supposed to do the mechanic where I'm, I'm moving, blowing the whistle, and I'm trying to determine which one of those guys moved first. And did they move? Did they move relative to me moving? And and what about, remember when you couldn't look up? Remember when that was going to be a thing? Guys are looking up all over the place. And, we, and as I tell referees every time, do you think he's looking up because he's losing? I mean, you're not supposed to be able to look up. He's looking up to figure out where he can put the ball. That means he has the clamp. That means he's trying to figure out where he can escape. So it's another one of those things that, you know, I don't, um, I don't know what the solution is, um, but there's less to do whether you, good guy, bad guy, or this guy's controlling too much of the game. I, I really, you know, you got to strategize against that, and it's been proven that you can. But I just don't think the referees can call that consistently either. It's not anti-referee. I just think it's crazy. Yeah, I agree. I, listen, I think it was better when the refs went like this and you could look. I think it was better when you just kind of let that, let it be a free-for-all in there. And um, it was more of a – the best, the best face-off guys were still the best face-off guys, but, but there, was, there was a little gamesmanship to it. And, you know, who, who cares? Just let those guys just go battle it out. I mean, I think the main thing nobody really likes is to see somebody always win 75% of the face-offs. And even though Greg the Beast, you know, would just rip that comment to shreds, and I, I respect that. Um, but I, but I also like, I mean, I, I just think we, we like to have things, you know, closer to 50, 50, where you could still make a big play, but it wasn't a foregone conclusion. Cause right now when it's 28 out of 31 faceoffs, um, you know, it's just it kind of, to me, it kind of spoils a game. So that's just my, thing. Right. my cold. Those, those are my, those are my two things. Yeah. Nick and, uh, uh, I'd love to see Nick B. Nick B. He's the man. One of my all-time yeah, favorite guys. I mean, I never knew him, but I remember. All right, um, Jay, uh, Jeremy Darin, Darren, can't really tell how you pronounce okay. it. Hey, Jerry from West Tennessee. Um, I, think, I think Jeremy stuff. coach. I think Jeremy was a college coach somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, OCCQ's Limestone, and now West Jenny is where he's coaching. And he wants right. to know about uh, practice tempo. Um, and what do you do to maintain the energy to get the most out of the last 30 minutes of practice, kind of like the fourth quarter? So was, what was part of the question about practice tempo? Yes. Um, you know, I, I think you, you know, I think, you know, the, 
it's obviously easier at the college level, but you know, you definitely want to, you know, one of the things that, that we do is that, you know, we, we have a Google doc here and we're constantly adding to, Hey, we need to work on that. Or let's talk about that. And where do we fit that in when we're, when we're putting our practice plan together. So you have, you know, you have your, your time block on an electronic document and then on the, to the right of it is all these topics, end of games, different ground ball drills, small sided stuff. And then you kind of, you're cutting and pasting in, as you're building your practice plan. So I think the, the, the creation of tempo at practice is a function of how you, you put the puzzle pieces of your practice together to make sure that it's, that it makes sense to your guys. And it's particularly hard in high school. I've, I've coached at the high school level and I know you have as well, Jamie, that you have this big palette of all the things that you want to teach, but you guys, you know, have two weeks of practice maybe before your first scrimmage and three weeks before your first game, maybe that you have to, you have to be even more frugal and, and circumspect with how you build your, your practice plan. But I think tempo is based on practice plan. It's also based on, the simplicity and the ease with which you can transition from one thing to another. So you don't waste time setting up drills. So the, the more that you can create a drill bank, either through YouTube or a private, you know, um, you know, website where you're sharing these things with your players, because the more you can go from we're doing this today and then be out on the field and get to it quickly and have it clear what the, what the, the teaching and the objectives of the drill are that helps drive tempo because there's nothing worse than a coach spending 15 minutes setting up a drill that you're going to do for six minutes. And I think that happens a lot at the college level. I know I've fallen into that trap myself as well. So ease of drill setup, clarity of drill objective, anything you can do with your players and your staff before they get on the field that makes that transition easy. And how do you keep the, uh, the intensity and, and the pace at, at practice is obviously how all those different pieces uh, come together in a, in a practice plan. And it's also culture, you know, relying on your players. As I tell my players all the time, I'll go, if, if your energy is driven by my intensity, then we don't have a great culture and we don't know how to work hard because I can do that every day, but then I'll be the only guy driving that. You'll be, it'll be contingent upon what I'm doing when the energy and the effort and the emotion should be coming from you, not from me. I played in college already. That my time is gone. This is your time. Long gone. Long gone. <laughs> um, one of the things I think that you've always done really well is that you've, you've, you've sort of built upon your drills. And, you know, I think a mistake that some coaches do is they just have too many different drills. And it's like, what you really need to do is get some core drills that work for you. And then you, you can layer on some of the new things that you might want to do. Um, and, and they'll evolve and the kids will know exactly what they are. And part of the evolution is that you can't teach them 80,000 things on the first time. You just got to get them to, you know, if you're doing 32 lunch bales, like let's get the right spacing. Let's get our Dodgers on the perimeter, giving us a couple of dodges and let's focus on approach for the on ball and stance off ball let's sort of leave it at that instead of getting into every detail of what you might say and exactly how to do it, right. you kind of have to get it going, right? Yeah, you, you have to have a, a foundation of, of the things that you kind of believe in, you know, with certainty and clarity. And one, you're exactly, once you have that, then you have these five to 10 drills that are all the time drills and you can create modifications off of them. So you mentioned 32 lunch pail. So you can customize that to your opponent. You're playing a, you know, we did 32 lunch pail, you know, getting ready for um, Fairfield and they had a couple of really talented lefties. So we're getting a lot of butt end, butt end jabs and split and walk the dog and step away. So you can customize the drill based on your opponent as well. And then you're exactly right. You can add a sliding component. You can add a communications component. You can add a slide recovery, a double team component. You're, you know, you hit the nail on the head. And so now going back to the earlier point to Jeremy Durin's question was now 
you don't have you 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 have a core drill that you're just modifying for this day, and you take you know you spend 45 seconds talking about the modification instead of the 10 minutes on the setup. And you know, I, I'm you know what I've come to realize you know, as I've gotten older is don't search for perfect reps. If the choice is three perfect reps, but not a lot of reps, but you know, 25 reps with three of them being perfect, I'll do the second one, you know, because now you can, whether it's using film or huddle or telestrations, you can contrast the, the perfect with the imperfect and use that as a teaching moment that, that says, this is why this wasn't good enough, this drop step, or you wound up the check, or you, you stood up straight, you know, that's a chance to teach, which, you know, is going to not, you know, the guy who's doing it perfect, he can now be not the, not only the exemplar of how to do it right, but he can also help the guy who's doing it imperfectly do it better next time. And that's, that's culture. One thing I got to show you talk about drill banks. So for anybody that's looking for something like that, there's an endless amount of content in here uh, for people that are looking for any virtual type of uh, coaching. Very cool. Yeah, it is good stuff. Um, so I did, speaking of that, uh, you know, I'm always, I, I love building content and I'm, I'm, I am a self-proclaimed disciple of Jerry Burns defense. So I spent a, uh, I spent a couple of years just like, first of all, inviting him to clinics, going to practices, talking on the phone. Um, and then I was a high school coach coaching defense. And I was like, I want to put this defense in. I just would send you little videos or send you a picture of like all my guys sideways with, you know, be like, how about that? Um, and I learned a lot and it was really cool. Um, and I've continued to be interested in it and I've created a lot of content around that. But one of the, one of the, but I always knew Jerry was holding back a little bit just because, you know, you have to, you can't, can't always give away your secrets. Right. GB. Yeah. There's always left room for, you know, always left room for doubt or, you know, That's right, there, was right. something, there was something missing. You can always leave a little bit out. And um, so one of the things was, as Jerry had told me, or in a coach's clinic, he has he had these seven, seven sins of the defense, things you don't do. And one of them is never square up to the ball until you're sliding. So that made perfect sense to me because I'm like, well, you should be sideways. I get it. See your man in the ball. But it wasn't until I was doing an interview of Eddie Glazner that he goes, I know for a fact that if Landis squares up to the ball, he's going. And I was like, that's what that was all about. And it was like literally one of the most interesting things I've learned in the last six months or a year about being able to, you know, it's read and, and, and make your next decisions. It's just phenomenal concepts. And, um, you know, I was psyched to be able to piece that together. Like, those, those guys, you know. It was, it, you know, like it's, 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 it's so rewarding to, to, to hear those guys and have them talk about it and how connected they all are. And all those guys who played on, on the Redwoods was a, was a really cool thing. I got to go to one of their games last year and Matt St. Laurent was nice enough to have me down on the sideline and be in the locker room and, you know, he's like, oh, come in, come into the locker room. The game was at Hopkins. And I'm like, dude, if you invite me any closer, I'll be grabbing the whiteboard and, you know, taking over your halftime thing. And I think I might get me fired from, from my job. So, um, but no, it's, you know, Eddie was a special, um, you know, kind of student and, you know, just has become a great player because he's found that way to marry his intellect and his, his verbal acuity with his athleticism. And that's, you know, it's the, the product of all three of those, those things that have, that, that, that has made him one of the best defensemen that, you know, and if I was you know, building a national team, that would be a guy that I would take because, you know, they, they always, on these teams or any all-star team or thing like that, they always want to take the, the, you know, the, the massive athletic cover guy who isn't always that dedicated to, playing great off-ball defense. They're worried about getting caught on film, you know, with their guy scoring much more than they, they care about getting a stop. And I think, uh, you know, um, at, at both Harvard and Notre Dame, 
believed in creating that 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 micro community of guys who just cared about the stop because you either got the stop or you don't who cares whether you got a takeaway check that you didn't get the ball or who cares you know that you blew a guy up and you know you were late on your slide and that's what you did you decided to blow him up because you were late and get a penalty so I mean, I think uh, I think creating a, a culture of defense requires a mentality around selflessness and interconnectedness and interdependence that that you build over time. And I'm, you know, uh, obviously proud of the group that, that I was able to coach for 13 years at Notre Dame, but probably as proud of just you know, sadly, the seven months that we were together here at at Harvard. You know, I wish I had time to tell you all the things that they did on their own. You know, they connected with my Notre Dame guys, both the close defensemen, long, long stick middies, D middies, because they wanted to know what they knew to speed up their development here and embracing what we were trying to do. And, and we had made great prog progress in defensive efficiency and, and goals against. And, you know, it's sad that I won't see where that will go for the next month and a half to two months. Uh, but, you know, I'll remember these guys forever because they took an infrastructure and, you know, used the relationships with the Notre Dame guys and used technology and, and, and completely embraced what we were trying to do. I'm, I'm, I'm sad, but also proud. We just got a little note uh, from Dave Katowski throwing out the Commonod oh. connection and uh, Levittown and, and East Meadow boys. Yes. You guys had to have been like, you know, Bloods and Crips back then, East Meadow. <laughs> I'm trying to trying to think. What what year was is Dave a year behind? What year did Dave graduate Dave from my Brown? class? Me and he, me and Dave were roommates uh, senior what, year at Brown. What year is that? Eight at Brown. All right. So he was a he was a freshman at uh, Shamanad when I was a senior, so I may have may or may not have stumped him in a locker at some point. Oh um, yeah, I'm sure you gave him a massive wedgie. But <laughs> you know, Levittown and East Meadow were you know separated by Hempstead Turnpike and, and Newbridge Road, and so you know, but Dave Dave was not a guy that I would you know mess with lightly. So uh, um, he may have thrown me in a locker when I was a senior. I, I weighed I weighed 135 pounds and. And Dave was a little bit thicker and more, uh, you know, I'm not saying he was on HGH, but he could have been back in the, in the early 80s. Um, um, I really would like to see, I mean, I, I just need a picture of you from back that, back in the day. I just want to see the, I want to see that, you know, you're, you probably had, you know, you're like 6'3", six, 6'6", six, six with your afro, kind of like Fletch. <laughs> and it makes $3 million a year, earns every nickel of it. We're going to fight for that rebound. Um, I, no, uh, but I, my, I, I, two things guys would say about me, you know, I, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't play. I played two years of high school lacrosse. My junior year, I didn't play for a second at Chaminade. Um, I, that story is well worn. Jack Morant totally kept me on that team because my brother was a, a starting defenseman at Virginia at that time. Uh, knew I wasn't adopted because we looked very similar, but uh, my senior year. They called me the rubber chicken because I was so skinny. And one, one of the other seniors would say, Bernsey, stick out your tongue. You look like a zipper. And so, <laughs> yeah, but I was, I was 139 pounds my, my senior year. No way. At Chaminade. At, at and uh, what was so your favorite song? Not, I was not striking fear into the hearts of men. What was your favorite song back then in uh, in, in 1982? 1982, 1982, my senior senior spring, you know, Jay Giles' Centerfold was was huge. Um, I think, you know, I ran by maybe Flock of Seagulls. You know, New Wave was blowing up, and you know, I know you're big into music and documentaries. There's an unbelievable documentary on Netflix about WLIR, which was the New Wave new music radio station on Long Island. So, you know, New York was the, you know, the port of entry for, you know, a lot of things physically and culturally. And there's an unbelievable, I think it's called Dare to be Different. And because that was the tagline for WLIR. And so that's where, you know, I was listening to a lot of The Clash back then. And so The Clash, The Cure, um, 
There's also inter, you know, way to what's that? The English beat, English beat, um, XTC. But it's funny. I was talking to this with with one of my UMass buddies recently, and the I I also had an eight track, so I was listening to cassettes and. I know we're dating ourselves. The A-track was... A-track, you know, baby. You've seen pictures. But I bought three before in August of 1982, as I was leaving to go to college. The last three A-tracks I ever bought. And I'm going to lay that on you. What were they? Um, Elvis Costello. Yeah. Um, uh, this, year's, uh, this year's model, I think, is the name of the album. It has uh, a bunch of great songs on it. Uh, Never mind the ball locks. This is the Sex Pistols, and Ian Hunter and Mott the Hoople's Greatest Hits, which is you know just a bizarre eclectic that is. combo. So, so you have a tr- meanwhile, a surprisingly, player. I didn't date much with that. With <laughs> did that. you have a did you have an A track player in your uh, Camaro? I had an A track player in my in my freshman dorm, hundred percent. What about in your Camaro parked out front? That's when I was talking to Scotty. I did not have my driver's license yet. I was like one of the last people, you know. I had a Schwinn, a Schwinn I drove around the uh, town, and you know, you know. But I, I didn't have a car. I didn't have my license yet. Do you have a banana seat on that thing? Uh, you know, but not. I, you know, I, I can't remember. I can't remember. Possibly. <laughs> I remember remember telling Scotty Hiller when I was visiting you guys last September, and he's like, "Does Jerry does Jerry have his Camaro parked up front?" <laughs> You know, like, you know, for, for an Irish-American guy, there was a lot of Camaros. My brother, my oldest brother, Thomas, who, who, did, who was a New York City fireman, he had a Cougar XR7. It, this was the most Guido car. It was brown and black, had the, had the headlight things that popped up like this. It had a little oval window in the back. And you could get like nine Leva Clowns in this car, nine Leva Italians in this car. It was huge. It was, you could have four people along the back seat. And that was back when you could call shotgun and showgun, which was the middle seat in the front seat. Yes, 100%. 100% showgun, exactly. Showgun. I haven't heard that in a while. But my brother had this massive car. So there were no Camaros. My, my dad had a uh, Monte Carlo, which was a real, you know, real Guido car that we used to bust my dad about. So, and, and then, but I ended up getting the Ford Granada ultimately is my first car that my father got from a fellow fireman for $50. And that I subsequently nicknamed the Crad because the, the, the alignment, you know, we would go, you know, doing stuff in the snow and your car would hit the curb. And the alignment, if you let go of the wheel, the car drove sideways. So I called <laughs> it the Crad. I like it. Uh, all right, Robert Anderson. Coach, what's, what's the important aspect you evaluate in a defenseman after footwork, their ability to play selfless in team D stick skills. What is, you know, um, I think, you know, with, with the 20, you know, I used to never really care about stick skills very much, but uh, after we have struggled to clear for most of our season this year, I've already realized how important the stick uh, piece is with the new clearing rules. But, you know, I think what I, what I look for the most is, is, you know, is the compete level that they have when they're on the ball and when they have the ball, do they have within a, you know, standard deviation based on the, the coaching and maybe some of the things that they've been taught? Are they, do they have, excuse me, do they have that same compete level off the ball? Because everybody wants to run with the ball because everybody's watching them. And so when I watch guys be unbelievably athletic with the ball, and I see a huge chasm between that and how they work on the ball and how they work off the ball. I'm like, man, that disconnection is, I might not be able to get past that, you know? And so is that, is that a personality thing? Is that a character thing? And they haven't, have they not been taught? So I, I, you know, I grade you on a curve within that, but if there's a narrow gap between how they cover and how they work and their stance and how they communicate and react when they're off the ball, not just when they're sliding. And if they're, Cause if they're good when they're sliding and they work hard on the ball, do they work hard in, in some of the secondary off ball roles? I really look for that. It doesn't necessarily mean if they don't do that well, I, I'll, 
you know, I'll, I'll grade that on a curve that maybe they haven't been taught how to do that yet. But yeah. I see guys walking around in that role and then all of a sudden they pop into, you know, high motor mode when the, you know, when they're one pass away, you know, I'll judge that kind of harshly. Yeah. Well, and plus, I mean, it's just, um, it's what you, what you always talk about is, you know, you can, you can steal some seconds back if you, if you work your tail off out there, whether it's when your man passes it or if you're two passes away or whatever. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I talk about to the, to the guys I've coached and we, we definitely harped on it here at Harvard is, you know, if, if you can ride pretty well, you know, whether it's, you know, riding to sub or actual pressure rides and, you can get your opponent down to a 45 second functional possession. And now if you steal some seconds, either with ball pressure or recovery footwork or slide preparation or how you, you make approaches on guys, if you do that seven or eight times, you can kill half of that 45 seconds. And now you're, you're screwing with the offenses uh, fluidity and, and, you know, their comfort level and you're, you're forcing to certain kind of dodges at certain kind of angles. And, you know, so I, but, but I, I think it's really important for a coach to accept the fact that this generation wants to know why, which I, I don't fight against that, but you try to find ways to use it is I always talk to guys about the, the cost and benefits of doing and not doing and because they're smart and they want to, if you create a culture where guys want to work hard and really care about their team, then say, like, the cost of not doing this is this, this, and this. Your skip lane is gigantic versus narrow. Your, his view of the field is this narrow versus massive because of ball pressure and what you do with heavier steps. So I think the more, the, and you have to do it continually, the more they understand that, they get it. They want to be good teammates. They want their team to be successful. They want to help you get the stop into a possession for your offense. So I, I think about that a lot. I think about articulating why you do things and what the benefit of it is. And, you know, and when I do film and telestrations with, with, with my players, I'm always showing them because why things happen bad mostly on possessions is usually not something that happens just in that moment. It's usually a, it's usually a layering of small mistakes that lead to a big, you know, opportunity for your offense. Now, listen, sometimes your offense just make great plays. And, you know, can, I always say, can they make 10 great plays? You, if you make your opponent score on great plays, you have a really good chance to win. And so, but I'm always talking about the cost benefit of, of doing what you've been taught versus not doing it well enough. All right. I got a question for you. So, um, as far as the why, you know, you want to explain why. So, um, and I've, I've always repeated one of the things that I know you teach, which is like the concept of your lead poke. Um, and um, I think what I kind of learned over the course of time is that there's a lot of different scenarios where you're gonna, about to engage with the ball. Sometimes it's in a rotation. Sometimes it's on a skip pass. Sometimes it's, it's, you know, you're going to play the best dodging attackman in division one behind the net, but you don't have to run out to him because he's behind the net. Where do you sort of talk about lead poke versus, hey, I really got to be ready to move and get my hands on this guy? Because I feel like if you're going to try to cover a Jordan Wolf or a Lyle Thompson and you just put your stick out, they can, they can like basically put you in a tough spot where you might not get your hands on them. Right. But I wanted you to maybe explain that detail if you could. Yeah, I think <clears throat> you start with, you know, when, when you're teaching technique, you, you, you usually teach it in its most perfect environment, most perfect scenario yeah. so that they understand what it feels like and what it looks like, what the benefit is. Um, but you, you mentioned earlier a drill that, you know, that a lot of teams do. I call it 32 lunch pail. And you have three Dodgers on the perimeter and two defensemen inside that triangle. And you, you have the guys on the perimeter do different um, moves based on maybe your opponent or maybe the most consistent moves that high school or college guys do. So, you know, 
we would do that, you know, so after you've already taught what you want the perfect technique to be and where's my wrist, where are my hands on the stick, how far is my elbow away from the body, you know, not, I call it becoming the zombie or your hands way over your feet, which is gives you length, but doesn't give you balance or your hands in close and you're an alligator and, you know, you can't, you know, you're T-Rex, you can't do these things. So, you know, trying to find for each guy what his ideal angle and where his hands and elbows are. So after you teach that, you then teach that, you know, using a drill like 32 lunch pail is you can now teach, you change the shape of the triangle. So if you're on a perimeter and Joe Blow is on the perimeter and Jim Smith's on the perimeter, I might make change the shape of the triangle where, hey, we're going to say you approach the Jamie is he's catching the ball at GLE and, you know, we're worried about a rocker or an inside roll. And, you know, Joe Blow is 12 yards away and he's at X and he's your speed dodger. So we probably want to, we want ball pressure, but let's make him a double move guy. So it's almost like a two-part approach. Like I get the first 10 yards are really aggressive and the last two yards have, you know, more choppy step. And, and Jim Smith over, over here, he's catching the ball off of a skip pass from below GLE and he's catching the ball at 18 and you're coming, you know, and he's catching the ball at 16 and he's got 15 yard range and he's selling that. So you gotta be prepared for a hitch or a split roll. So that's how I would teach the, you know, technique, you know, situational. And then when you start doing some of your, you know, skip survivor or, you know, skip stopper drill, you can now focus just on one piece instead of the three different elements yeah. of the guys on, on the perimeter and lunch pail. Does that, that make sense to you? I think so, yeah. Uh, and I think it's a little different because like you said, I mean, you, you said the words, um, you know, each person does it a little differently depending on what's most comfortable for them. I mean, I got a chance to coach Garrett Apple. And he's like surgical with the way he just places his his stick when he approaches pretty much right on your sternum, you know. But in watching, and I haven't gotten a chance to, to coach Matt Landis, but I've watched him a lot. And I did a webinar with him, and and he he gets set with his stick not as straight out. It's a little bit more maybe 45 degrees because I think he's getting ready to move his feet and get a bump on you. Um, I mean, and I was that's really where this question came to me, which is why I wanted to do those webinars with Glazner and Landis. Is I, I'm like, what is the difference? And I just didn't know. And then, then it started to occur to me that maybe it's a difference in scenarios. Like if you're guarding Jordan Wolf, you might as well just get ready to move. Whereas if you're rotating to somebody, you know, in transition or on man down and they, they might shoot, you got to arrive with right. Hope. So that's, I, I was just trying to wonder from your perspective. Yeah, I, I think part, part of it was also like he was, you know, listen, Garrett was unbelievably athletic too, but in a different way. And Sexton was unique in his own way as well. But like for just talking about like Landis versus Landis and Sexton, because they were, okay, they would both do a similar thing. And, and, you know, they, they earned that right. So like a, a great example for both of those guys, for Landis is was when, when we would play the, the great Syracuse teams, you know, they had, Kevin Rice and Donnie and, and Randy Stats. And we had, you know, or Notre Dame had, you know, Apple, you know, Landis, Glaze, and Steve O'Hara, right? So each of them, you know, unbelievable, you know, groups, of, you know, all American defensemen. And, you know, Syracuse would, you know, run just, you know, because you know, Kevin, you know, Coach Donnie was so, so good at the simplicity and the spacing. And we would call uh, seesaw cuts what I called what Syracuse did that when those guys were there, Kevin Rice would work to get to the island and, and Stotts and uh, less Stotts, but more like, um, you know, Marasco or Donahue coming from his left side. And they would create these little, what I would call seesaw cuts because um, Kevin Rice could move three steps this way, three steps that way. And, and Donahue was so good inside and finding that, space and they you know when Morasco was there you know he'd be on the wing and they'd have a righty come in and fill you know from a high position they would you know I would call it a, a four high or a five high and they gave Morasco and 
and Kevin Rice the, the ability to get to the island and, and basically toy with the slide guy. They were good enough after a couple of moves to get underneath or get to the middle of the field on a guy, but you had to respect the fact that they were putting people in the crease at different angles that could play behind the head of the slide guy. So, you know, rel you know relative to Landis on Rice is that Landis, you know, you know, I was such a V-hole guy, but Matt would have his stick at different angles because he was, you know, trying to channel a guy a certain way or, and he was athletic enough to be able to do that where he didn't have to be as militant with, you know, the technique that I taught that he could be at a different angle because he had the footwork. And then, you know, we would try to push, you know, almost not, almost not give him the island, but, you know, force him up there and basically force him toward the sideline or force him toward the corner of the, the box. And, and um, so that's why you see sometimes Matt's on a different angle is because I think he's such a confidence with his footwork. With a guy like Sexton, who was a different kind of athlete, much more instinctive, John had really good feet. He wasn't as agile as, as Matt, um, but, but John liked to trail to help create the takeaway opportunities. And John was such a, he would trail, ride a guy, what I'd call ride a guy's back. Yeah. Where it could be a button, you know, right against right, he could be butt, butt end drive. And then he would bring it over and catch a guy as he turned, you know, get it in there where the guy thought he was getting to a spot on the field that was really advantageous for him. And then John would bring it over and get that, that dig and that can opener check that he was so good at. And uh, both of them did them. Um, John was just spatial and the efficiency of how he moved and how he knew that if I could do this well, I'm going to create a situation where a guy's rolling back to his weekend or, or getting caught in that exchange, strong hand to weekend, and, and you would take advantage of those opportunities. So both of those guys were not this, like the ideal yeah. technique like a guy like Glaze or Apple would have, but they, they both did them for reasons that they proved could work. That's so interesting, too, because, I mean, I think that then as a coach, you know, th there's things you want to teach. And it's like, you know, listen, I want you to know how to do this. But um, oftentimes the athletes will figure out the best way also. And that's really what you're saying is that they did, they, they did learn the way that you wanted them to do it. But then eventually people learn how to do stuff that works for them. And it may work a little differently for them, you know, than somebody else. But, um, but it's, it's – I know that I used to have, you know, an issue – you know, like wanting people to do it this way. What I really think is they're like, yeah, learn it because I need to, I need you to know this, but we also, every player is going to be a little different. And, and you know, you, you don't want your guys to be robots right. and listen, co coaches are control freaks, but losing a element of control, which I learned over time, it was not part of my personality because you want to control every element you want, you know, if you, you, have, if you have certainty that it has to be done, this way and, and I tell you know we were talking about three perfect reps versus volume of reps in which three are perfect give me the volume because there's so many ways to you know you're getting to do it more and you're getting to learn what's good and what's really good and you're getting your teammates to coach for you and and, and you know I tell tell my guys all the time it's like part of the growth defensively for our, our group here at Harvard was letting go you know, we were trying to exponentially speed up our, you know, belief and acceptance in the way that we wanted to play defense is part of that to speed that up. I had to even let go more. I had to let them do their own film sessions and teach them, you know, get, you know, get a, a group of guys who became, you know, who got better at it faster and then they could bring other guys along with them. And that, you know, of, of, of all the great achievements that we had here in seven or so months, is that, you know, that, that fills me up how, how hard they work. But it started with me letting go just out of, you know, Ivy League rules and the amount that you can practice and what you're allowed to do in the fall and, you know, how that different that was coaching in the ACC. I had to do it, but the having to do it taught me that I can do that in the future as well. And doing it imperfectly helps guys learn maybe a different way that works with their skill set and their athleticism. So yeah, being open to that. There's certain things that are non-negotiable for sure, but you, you don't, you're not stamping guys off at an assembly line. They're humans, they're lefties, they're righties, they're tall, they're skinny, they're thick. 
yeah, you know, you got you gotta you gotta be open to the fact that not everybody's gonna a hundred percent conform. Not everybody's gonna restrain themselves from going over the a guy's head two steps after the goal line. Yeah, you know, that picture in your in your you know, I think if that, that picture from uh Lake Placid is blown up, you know. Uh, I think I'm thinking about going over your head. I'm, I'm, I'm barely in that frame, I think. But if I was in that frame, that's what I was thinking. Well, I'm going lefty there, Jerry. So I don't <laughs> think you're going over my head quite yet. No, you, I'll go the other way. I'll go reverse over the head. Oh, you will? Right. You'll go reverse over the head and then get me with the, and, the and back into, into, a, into, into a pencil, into the reach around, the whole thing. <laughs> hey, Bernsey, thanks a lot for coming on. I mean, I know this has been um, – this is, it continues to be such a trying time for so many. Um, and I know we touched on the realities and, and, and stuff early in this, but I, I really wanted to be able to just talk lacrosse and have a little bit of fun. And I think uh, we achieved that. So thanks for coming on. Oh, uh, listen, I hope we can do, you know, we've got a lot of free time coming up. You know, we might have to do this, uh, you know, once or twice a month, who knows, maybe the people, maybe the people will want it. You know, we got to make sure we, you know, you know, our, our cultural references aren't too obscure. You know, I'm not, sure everyone, got, I'm not sure if everyone got your Fletch reference, but, you know, they should look it up. It's all ball bearings these days, Jerry. What was he doing up there? Stunt flying? <laughs> what do you need, a refresher course? I, I, uh, I saved his life during the war. Oh, you were in the war? No, got him out. <laughs> hey, have a good one, buddy. All right, next time, brother. Thank you. Yeah, take care. Take care.